Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Francisco L. Borges and the Melville Charitable Trust. All right, so unfortunately, Kion Wolf is off today. Greg Hill is on the West Coast. We can't have a snappy introduction, uh, which is so sad because there are so many ways we could have done uh, a snappy Buckminster Fuller introduction, including what I was thinking about was maybe just something from Mad Max Beyond the Thunderdome. Maybe Tina Turner and Mad Max would fall into a conversation about geodesic domes and the legacy of Buckminster Fuller and how the whole apocalyptic murderous scenario sitting before them was actually the result uh, of this relatively mild-mannered uh, inventor from a previous century. Uh, so that's what we're talking about today is uh, Buckminster Fuller, not Mad Max Beyond the Thunderdome. Uh, and it's a remarkable story. Uh, here to help us tell that story is Jonathan Keats, a frequent visitor to our show. He's live from the Sports Byline Theater in San Francisco. I don't know what that is, but it sounds exciting anyway. Sounds like the Thunderdome. Uh, and he's a conceptual artist and experimental philosopher some from San Francisco. Uh, and his latest book, You Belong to to the universe, which is a something that uh, that Buckminster Fuller either told himself or was told by the universe, uh, and is also the title of Jonathan's book, which is out April first. Uh, it's about Buckminster Fuller. Also joining us by phone, Bonnie DeVarco, a researcher, former chief archivist at the Buckminster Fuller in- Institute, where she's also a senior advisor to the Fuller Change Program. So. Um, Jonathan, we need to tell a little bit of this story of who this guy is. And Buckminster Fuller, uh, conveniently or otherwise, had this kind of uh, Homeric origin uh, story about himself uh, that was maybe one part truth and one part Joseph Campbell. Um, And it involved uh, his... Uh, his upbringing, it involved this kind of um, the story of a guy with remarkable gifts, uh, gifts that were not always 100 percent rewarded. So uh, we'll have to condense it a little bit. But we can say that as a kid, um, he, on the, on the one hand, exhibited some real special talents, but also uh, some real special liabilities. Is that fair to say? Yes. Uh, Buckminster Fuller was from birth to death a man of contradictions who managed to resolve those contradictions in his own mind and to do so through a sort of self-mythologizing that really has become the basis by which we know him today. Even at the very beginning, he was someone who did not fit in. He didn't fit into school. He dropped out of Harvard or was kicked out, fired, as he put it, twice. He ended up working in a textile factory for a time and learning a bit about mechanics. He was a genuine autodidact, and it allowed him to cross disciplines in a way that nobody else did in his time. Yeah, I mean, I, it might, some of the specifics are, are kind of enchanting in, in different ways. There's a, one story about how uh, like a kindergarten or first grade teacher was asking the class to, to build houses or something like that. And he had these terrible vi- uncorrected vision problems at the time. He really uh, couldn't even really see what he was supposed to be doing and almost by feel, according once again to this, you know, possibly self-created mythology. He was building uh, these houses using one of the geometric figures that would ultimately come to define his legacy uh, and, and 
and like there's story after story like that. The textile mill, Jonathan, uh, was this place where the machines didn't work right. They were shipped over from some other country. And this guy who had just been expelled from Harvard because he really wasn't a conventional classroom learner. He was kind of that learn-by-doing guy. Right away, he got very interested in how these machines worked, why they didn't work, how they could work better, which – and that last question seems to be one of the things that, that defines him over and over. Why isn't this as good as it could be? How could it be better? Yes, Fuller was always somebody looking for solutions to problems in the broadest possible sense of the word. He essentially wanted to make, as he said, he wanted to make the world work for 100% of humanity in the shortest possible time through spontaneous cooperation without ecological offense or the disadvantage of anyone, which is a rather large ambition, to say the least. And he was interested in absolutely everything. And it was the confluence of that ambition, the problem that he set himself, which was so totally open-ended, and the skills that he developed as a result of his interest in everything, as well as the ways in which he, uh, he developed them with a naivete, not necessarily to recognize that they had been thought through before in other ways. So they were genuinely his, and he felt fully free to apply them in this grand project of making the world work. Um, one of his admirers, dis- dis- admirers described him as one of the people driven mad by the 20th century, uh, lumped him in with Le, Cor- Le Corbusier, I can't even say it, Le Corbusier, uh, and Stravinsky, uh, people like, and Picasso, uh, people like that, maybe driven mad by the possibilities inherent uh, in technological growth in the 20th, 20th century, but also all the ways in which it wasn't maybe being used right, uh, ways in which it just needed to be rethought and used more innovatively. Um, he's, he's born at a time of incredible growth and innovation. In fact, let's hear Spalding Gray uh, saying Buckminster's Fuller's own words about the era into which he saw himself born. I was born at an extraordinary moment. In 1895, the year I was born, the X-ray was discovered. We could then see what had previously been invisible. When I was three, the electron was discovered. When I was seven, the first automobile drove into the city of Boston. I was brought up being told that it was inherently impossible for man to fly. When I was eight, the Wright brothers flew. By the time I was 11, Marconi's wireless was in practical use to signal SOS. When I was 14, man got to the North Pole. When I was 16, he got to the South Pole. So impossibles were happening seemingly every day. Evolution is integrating all of humanity. We are accelerating together at a tremendous pace. So we're talking about Buckminster Fuller today. I mean, eventually this man becomes, uh, and maybe becomes in, in several iterations, several times over, a very unusual kind of American celebrity, a kind of celebrity who kind of, I don't really know that he exists anymore. The kind of guy who gets on the cover of Time magazine, gets uh, gets uh, sit down with people like Dick Cavett, um, all because he's this uh, literally out-of-the-box thinker, uh, out-of-the-box with all the right angles that are uh, inherent in this box. But um, as 
as you say, Jonathan, it's fu- the story is full of contradictions. For every uh, vision that this guy has, th- there's this incredible setback. Uh, and so, like, he goes up to this textile mill, turns out to be really great with all these machines. Uh, the word gets back home, and they think, you know, let's send him back to Harvard. <laughs> he immediately gets expelled again because he just he doesn't learn that way. He can't learn that way. And there are all these other setbacks, and, and we'll sort of uh, telescope past them to 1927, I think, is, which is when he has his— uh, his kind of aha moment or his uh, maybe it's the reverse of I you know I think it is an aha moment so explain what happens in 27 well I wasn't there and nobody <laughs> yes. knows but he insisted and embellished over and over again it was a pivotal moment in his myth that he stood on the shore of Lake Michigan ready to commit suicide because the last thing he had to offer his family was his life insurance policy. And as he stood on the shore, he was told by a voice that he considered to be the universe itself speaking to him that he did not belong to himself, that you belong to the universe. And that voice convinced him that he needed to set everything aside that he had been thinking about and doing, take a vow of silence for several years. This we know not to have been the case since he went to work as a flooring salesman shortly thereafter. But nevertheless, he filled many, many notebooks with ideas that centered around the central tragedy of his life at that time, which was the death of his first daughter from meningitis. And his attribution of that to unsanitary living conditions led him to think about how he could make a house that would be ideal in every way and accessible to all so as to prevent the tragedy that had become him, that had beset him from besetting others. And that led him to this larger and larger attempt at trying to make the world work for everybody. Uh, but we should uh, add Bonnie DeVarker to this conversation. Uh, as I said before, researcher, former chief archivist at the Buckminster Fuller Institute. So, Bonnie, this story is important for some reason. I mean, it's you know, there are so many clips of Buckminster Fuller that you can watch now uh, on the Internet. It's amazing how many times he tells the story. It, it may not be precisely exactly 100 percent true, but for him, it's some kind of narrative propulsion that he needs. Why is this story so important for him? Well, I think that uh, the story, uh, do you hear me? Yeah, we can hear you. Oh, okay, great. Um, I think the story that he told was, uh, was definitely turned into a, a central aha experience, um, much like many students who heard him speaking, my, myself included. I was one of the later students in the early 80s, late 70s that saw him speak uh, with standing room only, and we had, you know, this incredible experience about what we needed to devote our lives to, which was to think in the largest terms possible. And the interesting thing about the myth is that in tracking it through all the iterations of all the books and articles that had been written about him, all of his talks where he brought it up over and over, uh, he always used 1927 as his reference point. He was out of work at that time. His baby, uh, Allegra, second child, was born. But it was in February 28 where he actually had that experience. And the earliest writings that I have found, and maybe Jonathan is familiar with something earlier than that, uh, but it is in 1939, 
It was after his Nine Chains to the Moon was published. It's in one of the old Dymaxion chronophiles, which were 75 bound books of everything that came in and out of his life. Uh, then later, many boxes, because he couldn't bind these anymore. But he called it a mystical experience. And one of the key things that is in this document and then came up at the very end of his life was in here he was walking downtown to see Ford's industrial show on the south side. Uh, his first, he saw the person who had fired him. Uh, he's walking in from the art museum, according to this, uh, 1939. You think, and he heard this voice saying, you think truthfully from now on you never you need never await temporal attestation to your thoughts. And an interesting thing is, through all of, uh, we were trying to find, um, it was this myth true? And yes, he did speak. And, and yes, he did write. Here he says he wrote 5,000 pages of this great, um, this great aha experience that turned into the seeds of almost everything that he did for the next 56 years of his life. But where the mystical experience of being in the sphere itself was uh, one of his later uh, writings, which was uh, a comment for the book of co-creation by Barbara Marks Hubbard. And if I may, I'd like to read it because... So many of us have not seen him actually speaking of it or writing of it. Um, it was February 1928 that I had this real and extraordinary experience, the only one in my life that was utterly mystical. I was walking on Michigan Avenue in Chicago when suddenly I found myself with my feet seemingly no longer touching the pavement. I found myself floating along at the center of a sparkling sphere. Then I heard a deep, loud, and clear voice such as as I had never heard before, saying, from now on you need never await temporal attestation to your thought. You think the truth. And so I think that the experience of knowing that he wasn't a failure, the importance of his own mind belonging not to him, but belonging to the larger universe, that he could devote himself as what he called an ordinary man to at the time, a, a, what he thought the mortality uh, for men at the time was age 43 to 48. And he thought maybe for the next 10 years he would devote his life to this purpose and, and considered himself guinea pig B, B for Bucky. So I think in that experience, regardless of its mystical connotations, regardless of how it might have been mythologized through the years by him and others, it was really his way of embarking on the self-documentation, the rigor that led to his huge body of materials is considered the most extensive archive in existence. You know, I want to just uh, break in here and say, first of all, you know, for a lot of people listening, they may be going, huh? Like, even who is this? I'm old enough to remember a time where if you were a reasonably educated consumer of news in America, you knew who Buckminster Fuller was. He was that big a celebrity. He was really that well known. Uh, but but Jonathan, I think one of the other things he and, and so the things that maybe people would know if you walked up to them in a shopping mall and pointed a microphone. 
microphone at them uh, would be geodesic domes, spaceship, Earth, maybe the Dymaxion car. We're going to talk about all those things. But Jonathan, another thing he was was a kind of performance artist. You know, he's he reminds me a little bit of Twain in the sense that Twain had this kind of self-created identity out of, out of the original Samuel Clemens. He reminds me of Twain in that both of them were relentless speakers uh, traveling around the globe. Uh, Fuller, by one account, circles the globe 122 times giving speeches. He gives 400 speeches a year sometimes. Uh, gives speeches that are two, three, four, seven hours in length, sometimes uh, even longer than that. Uh, you can g- get on the w- web and very easily find a seven and a half our conversation between Fuller and Werner R. Earhart, the, the inventor of Ast. There, there's a way in which he is, Jonathan, a, a performer and a performance artist as much as, as he is also an incredibly concrete uh, thinker, although not a big fan of concrete, I don't think, but a, a, a real a thinker about the physical world and a maker of the physical world. He's a showman. I believe that that is true, that he was an incredible showman and that that was essential for his ability to activate the imagination of so many people and to get so much done. He was not, however, a performance artist in the sense of having a self-reflectiveness in the way of a sort of irony that Twain, for instance, had or that you might attribute to somebody who is a performance artist in the modern sense of the word. He was as sincere as can possibly be, I believe. And that was a great asset in terms of his devotion to his ideas and in terms of getting people to be true believers in those ideas. But it also was, I think, greatly to his detriment because it resulted in an intolerance for ideas other than his own and because it resulted in a need to proselytize and an effect that he had on many others of making them either disciples or making them fellow travelers or simply having them dismiss him as a crackpot. He, uh, I was trying to think of other sort of comparisons, and it's not insignificant that we had Ralph Nader uh, on the show, on the station here for an hour earlier today. There are some Nader-esque qualities to Fuller. Obviously, he thinks bigger, he's more inventive, but both of them are constantly asking why things are being done the way they are. Why can't they be done better? Why can't uh, they be done more for the benefit of the world? There's a little bit uh, of Bernie Sanders uh, also in him, too, this kind of sense that as long as we're chained to the conventional political political process and chained to the profit motive and the interests of shareholders, we're not going to be able to do what he, Jonathan, overarchingly wants to do, which is make the world work for 100 percent of its people. That is correct. And had he not been so persistent in espousing his vision and had he not been so ingenious at bringing together various attempts at different things that were not necessarily so connected, except for the fact that he was the one who was undertaking them. I don't think that he would have had the power that he did mesmerizing people through these talks that he gave. He was really constantly digesting what he had done in the past and then building it into this larger story that he was making about himself. And there was a megalomania about it. We were talking about 1927 versus 1928 as far as the epiphany moment. And one reason for that may have been that 
he was able to read Corbusier's Toward an Architecture in the beginning of 1928, which got into this idea of the house as a machine, which was very different from what Fuller had idea and Fuller had in mind in terms of the dwelling machines that he later made, but where he desperately wanted to be the originator of this total worldview. And he succeeded not necessarily in being the originator of all of his own ideas, but in synthesizing all those ideas into something greater. Um, there, there's so many uh, ideas that uh, are that come from him or that have survived uh, from him or, or seem as though reality has finally caught up with him. We'll be talking a lot about those. But, yeah, obviously geodesic domes are a big deal. Uh, the notion of spaceship Earth, that's his coinage. And really m- one of the first people to talk in the way that we talk now about synergy. He popularized the term synergy, a guiding principle behind much of his work and his philosophy. Uh, and I do want you to hear his voice rather than Spalding Grace. So let's hear Bucky Fuller describing synergy. There was nothing in the moon in its geometrical dimensions. There was nothing in its chemistry. There was nothing in its electromagnetics that anyway said it was going to attract the Earth. There was nothing the Earth had said the same. It was not until you saw the inner behavior being manifested in free space that you realized something was going on between. This then comes to the word synergy. Synergy means behaviors of whole systems unpredicted by behavior of any of the parts of the system when those parts are considered separately, one from the other. Um, Bonnie, maybe you can give us a sense. I mean, there, there is a way in which this guy, and that, that doesn't sound like the most mesmerizing speech in the world when you pull it out of context and pull it away from him, but th- this guy really had the ability to mesmerize uh, and uh, audiences and, and pin people to their seats. So I, I guess you heard him. Uh, tell us what that was like. Oh, well, he had an urgency and a passion that I never heard anybody at that time, and I think it did galvanize students, not only in the later years where he was speaking to thousands of people at a time, but also the earlier years in the 1950s when he was teaching his lab classes, the hands-on classes to actually prototype many of his ideas. So he spoke about things such as ephemeralization, doing more and more with less and less, the idea being that the materials are extremely important in the evolution that we're seeing right now to be lighter and lighter and of lighter weight. And so what he was trying to figure out was nature's design, nature's technology, he called it, uh, in order to identify the function of humans in universe. So he put himself in the center of the universe, like in the center of that sphere that he experienced where everything came in a flood of inspiration and really felt and told his students that uh, he felt humans were local problem solvers and information harvesters. So he was trying to listen on the micro scale. He talked about being micro-incisive and macro-inclusive, so you were as cosmic, and you're going out into the universe as you're also going down to the nanoscale, something that we can do now, something that in the molecularium I think uh, it was beautifully attempted, and we're starting to see that happen with great visualizations and visualization technologies that we have now. Um, and that resulted in the confluence of his artifacts, 
which were um, a one-world view. He needed a map that showed uh, detailed information on it, but the Mercator projection uh, was not a useful map for that because of so much distortion. So at the same time that he's trying to understand the universe and map the world that we were moving into as planetary citizens, he was also trying to figure out what is the geometrical or the geometric base for a something that you could be inside of. The domestic product would be a home that you could be connected to the cosmos and connected to m moving and dynamic at all times. And also the geoscope, which was one of his first prototypes that was done in the 1950s throughout and ended up being this complex and very interesting uh, idea of being able to collaborate together inside of a very large spherical Earth. 400-foot diameter was his goal. Uh, Expo 67 was the, the proposal for Expo 67 included that. They did not accept that. It was too expensive, and computing didn't give enough information that we could actually put that onto the artifact itself. But I think his idea of ephemeralization speaks to us now because we can do so much more than he could do at that time. I do okay. want to say with regard oh, to materials... Uh, actually, had, Bonnie, Bonnie, we're going to take a quick break here just because uh, I've got to hit some breaks here. I want to uh, thank, by the, by the way, uh, you, Bonnie Dorco, very much for joining us today, researcher, former chief archivist at the Buck Buckminster Fuller Institute, where she was also a senior advisor to the Fuller Challenge Program. Uh, we're going to take a quick break. We're going to be back with more of a conversation about Buckminster Fuller after this. Last night I dreamt of him Buckminster Fuller the drives the flower brings Grace to caterpillars We're back. We're talking about the uh, amazing story of Buckminster Fuller, uh, one that probably uh, younger people today don't know as well. This is a guy who, among other things, I, I discovered uh, as getting ready for the show, uh, some kind of descendant of Margaret Fuller, the transcendentalist uh, whom we've done a show about, uh, a guy who had some of his upbringing on a tiny island in Penobscot Bay uh, called uh, Bear Island, uh, his family's own island uh, where they didn't, they made a point uh, for a long time not having electricity and things like that, anything that would kind of disturb the quiet. Um, they... Um, a place where he, as a young man, according to his Homeric myth, even invented a new kind of ore because he used to go in and pick up the mail or something like that, uh, row in in a dinghy, and he invented a, an ore that um, re replicated the motion of a jellyfish. Uh, there are just so many of these kinds of stories. Uh, Jonathan Keats is with us. His new book is You Belong to the Universe, Universe a message that uh, uh, Buckminster Fuller said he heard while floating uh, mystically uh, in a sphere, not unlike the ones that would come to define his legacy. So, um, Jonathan, I think we need to get down to brass tacks here a little bit and talk about some of the things that he did do. And so uh, one of the images, as you know, that haunts me is 1934, February 7th, the opening of uh, this modernist opera by Gertrude Stein and Virgil Thompson. Uh, it made its debut in Hartford because Chick Austin, the great modernist, was here. All these famous people came from all kinds of places, but maybe the most eye-catching thing, a thing that tended to stop traffic no matter where it was, where it, where it was seen, was this Lazarus 
lozenge-shaped car that uh, pulled up uh, in front of the, the Wadsworth Athenaeum and disgorged the woman who would become Claire Booth Luce, uh, the socialite uh, Dorothy Hale, uh, the sculptor uh, Azumu Noguchi. Uh, all, all these people got out uh, of this amazing vehicle that you know, looked then like something out of a science fiction movie and would look like that now if you saw one. So, so tell us about the Dymaxion car. The Dymaxion car was typical Fuller. It emerged from a problem that he foresaw, from a solution that he foretold, to a problem that he was trying to solve that was 10 levels removed from any sort of vehicular design. That is to say, he was attempting to figure out how to build housing that would not have the unhygienic qualities that he believed were responsible for the death of his first daughter. And in order to achieve that, he thought that housing needed to be a system that could be delivered anywhere in the world, not within the density of cities with their tenement structures, and that these could be delivered by airship, by dropping a bomb and then dropping a mast in the hole that was made and then suspending the house by mast in that, on that uh, structure. But if that was going to happen then it was necessary to be able to get to see your neighbors. And there might not be any roads since these houses were basically being dropped potentially everywhere. So therefore, it was, necessarily, it was necessary to have roadable aircraft. Mm-hmm. It was necessary to have these at a time when we're talking about very primitive airplanes still. And so he envisioned a roadable aircraft that was going to have inflatable wings and use jets, which did not yet exist in any sort of way that could be flown. And so... The fact that they didn't exist and that even the alloys necessary to be able to withstand the temperatures for those uh, sorts of jets did not exist led him to say, I'll start with the land taxiing system. And that became the Dymaxion car. And the Dymaxion car, even though it didn't uh, fly or anything like that, it was no slouch. This is a three-wheeled car that could turn on a dime the way cars uh, still can't turn, could pull into a tight parking space without having to back up into it, could achieve road speeds of 110, maybe 120 miles an hour, could carry 11 people uh, and get excellent mileage by the standards of the day and maybe even by the standards uh, of now. This was, in its own right, a, a pretty... Uh, amazing accomplishment, Jonathan, uh, and built nearby in Bridgeport, I think with workers recruited from Hartford's old Rolls-Royce factory? Yes, it was in the Depression, and there were Rolls-Royce workers who were out of work, and so he recruited them to work in Bridgeport on building a series of prototypes, uh, three prototypes over a period of time, and they were rather curious vehicles. They were built sort of like a boat because he had as his chief designer, Sterling Burgess, who was famous for building the America's Cup winning sailboats. And yet somehow this strange vehicle was, on the one hand, incredibly ahead of its time in terms of having very good aerodynamics and yet on the other hand, totally impossibly impractical in terms of the ability to control the car (laughs) through the steering system, which resembled something that was taken from shipbuilding and which had nothing to do with what you need when you're talking about driving on a road. 
Right. Eventually, I think at the World's Fair, the car does roll. Maybe not the car's fault, but the car gets involved in an accident where somebody gets killed, and and that's uh, more or less uh, the beginning of the end of that story. But um, but it was because of the way it looked and lots of other and the, the fact that it was aerodynamic at a time. I mean, picture the cars of the 1930s; these incredibly boxy-looking uh, Fords, uh, still full of right angles. Uh, Buckminster Fuller's worst enemy is the right angle. Uh, he basically says it doesn't. Exist exist anywhere else in nature. Why do we keep making things that way? And and so this thing, I mean, if you drove it in New York City, it would stop traffic. It would cause traffic jams in front of Madison Square Garden. And one of the things I loved, Jonathan, was he apparently collected the tickets he would get. Uh, he'd get these speeding tickets if he got it out on the open road, at, you know, 110 miles an hour or something. And, you know, being this guy who kind of enjoyed his own legend, you know, he, he did stuff like, you know, develop an impish collection of his speeding tickets. And yet we do need to put this in context. That is to say, when we were talking about earlier, his self-mythologizing, mm-hmm. this was the same time period where Chrysler was developing the Airflow, which was emphatically a car that was meant to be aerodynamic and which was rejected by the public by and large because it was too strange for the shape that it took. And also the uh, the Lincoln Zephyr is another example of this. So. Fuller is not so totally out of his time as he later liked to put it. But at the same time, this car was remarkable for a number of reasons, one of which was the fact that he claimed that it was inspired by birds and fish and that it was therefore this act of what we now call biomimesis or biomimicry, something that has become a byword of technology today, but in his own time was still relatively scarce. So uh, we should move quickly from uh, mobility to shelter. This is one of his other obsessions. Is why, why, why can't shelter be, first of all, a lot more, we might call it modular and transportable, uh, maybe interchangeable. Uh, maybe you have uh, your house in Iowa is so similar to one in Copenhagen that it's pretty easy for you to swap with somebody. He has this whole series of, of epiphanies. Again, more epiphanies. One of them is, according to him anyway, um, that he and it sort of makes sense because I really do see him as a guy probably bewitched a little bit by, by Mark Twain. Uh, uh, he's going to Hannibal, Missouri to see some of the Tom Sawyer scenes uh, with his friend. I was the guy who wrote Kitty Foyle, I think. Right. And, and he sees silos, grain silos. Right. And he thinks, why can't houses be like that? Why can't a house look more like that? So Jonathan Keats, this leads to a long series of attempts to kind of mess with the basic idea of an American house. Yes, the basic question that he was asking himself was why houses could not be built in factories in the way that cars were at the time because of the enormous efficiency that you could get and also the quality control and the ability to create a house that would be an all-encompassing dwelling machine, as he put it. And that led him to start thinking about how you could, in fact, achieve this. One big problem, of course, is that A car can be driven out of a factory. You can drive it to the showroom and sell it. Houses typically don't have that mobility. So the early ideas that he had about mobility and housing for very different reasons became essential to what ultimately became the Wichita house, a house that was to be built in the factories that had been used for building aircraft during World War II that were no longer really needed as the war came to an end. And to be able to build those houses in sufficient quantity to be able to account for all of the soldiers coming home. So he 
then went about thinking about what could you do if you could build a house in a factory with this incredible amount of control over your materials. And this starts from looking at these grain silos and thinking about when you're no longer dealing with conventional materials, then suddenly you can make a house that has total control over air currents, for instance. And then he threw in a lot of nice features like a dishwasher, which was unheard of at the time, television, and a a fog gun that could be used to allow you to take a shower with something like a pint of water. So thinking about this at so many different levels, both in terms of how to make housing accessible to all in a way that was decent and would accommodate everyone, but also how to do so with the least impact on the global environment as a whole. And beautiful though this idea is, the Wichita House Company itself, again, pretty much wipes them out, right? I mean, it commercially is not a success at all. This is one of the moments where Fuller probably could have succeeded if he had allowed himself to do so. (laughs) He had a habit of marking plans obsolete because there always was another idea that he came up with that would have improved upon what was about to go into production. He was, in other words, a great inventor and the worst of engineers in the sense of actually producing something. So as a result, the war came to an end. The factories found other uses. Other means were found to get housing to people, and the opportunity was lost. He winds up pretty much wiped out and uh, winds up also at this, and boy, we could do a whole show on Black Mountain College, this uh, incredible gathering of innovators and misfits, and, and it's John Cage and Arthur Penn, and it's uh, it's just all these amazing, Francine Dupuis Gray, and all these people are, are, are there, and he's there, and that's really one of the places, I guess, where he really first uh, begins to put up something that we will wind up calling a geodesic dome. He may not be the inventor of it, but he's the popularizer, right? Yes, he was originally thinking about this during the war, trying to figure out logistics for ships, his great obsession of how you can find a way to map the world's resources to accommodate the world's needs, led him to constantly playing with globes. And he took a essentially a salad bowl that he would use to draw shipping routes. And as he continually did so, he came up with a structure or this potential structure that became the basis for unfolding into a map that then became the basis for refolding into a structure once again, which was the geodesic dome. And he built that experimentally, a failure at first, at Black Mountain College, believing that he had figured out a basic geometric principle that would allow him to do what what he sought to do in everything, which was to do the most with the least. Um, it's uh, an amazing story and a longer story uh, and one that we probably don't have time to tell. We have to take a break. We're going to come back, talk a little bit more about some of the surviving uh, legacies and ideas. But as we wind up this B segment, I discovered a clip today of Buckminster Fuller singing, actually, and singing, if you can call it singing anyway, singing about his dome. So uh, let's go out with a little of that. Give me a home in the great circle dome where the stresses and strains are at ease. Round home to a dome on the crest of a neighboring hill 
where the chores are all done, before they're begun, and eclectic nonsense is nil. Round home to a dome, no banker would back with a dime, no mortgage to show, no payments to go, where you dream well and spend your own time. All right, uh, this is the part of the show where uh, Kion typically thanks everybody. Uh, Kion's not here. Uh, so uh, Betsy Catlin's taking over on the board today, doing a great job uh, with a complicated show. Uh, the show is the brainchild of Josh Nalea, uh, so uh, he gets the credit for that. Uh, and I think it's Ross in there on the phones right there. Is that who that is? Okay. Uh, and Tucker Ives might be tweeting for us. I'm not 100% sure. Uh, I'm not even 100% sure who the part of Bill Curry was played uh, by today. But uh, tomorrow we'll have the nose. Uh, we have a great panel. Uh, we're working on topics. So uh, come back and, and join us for that. So we, we, we have to sort of spend the we want to spend the final segment of the show talking a little bit about sort of what survives of all this. This amazing guy, Buckminster Fuller, this guy whose uh, ideas are uh, in, in some ways um, uh, the reality kind of is c- catching up to them. Uh, first of all, Jonathan Keats, we, in some ways, I feel like the philosophy of the of of modern life is catching up to him. We have something called maker culture now, right, which kind of emphasizes uh, learning through doing in a social environment, uh, informal, networked, peer-led. I'm reading one of the definitions of it, uh, and shared learning motivated by fun and self-fulfillment. Maker culture encourages novel applications of technologies and the exploration of intersections between traditionally separate domains and ways of working, including metalworking, calligraphy, filmmaking, computer programming. This does sound an awful lot like the Buckminster uh, Fuller playbook. You know, stop thinking in terms of categories. Start thinking in terms of what you could make or do that would make things better. I think that that's absolutely true. And also I think that the broader mantra of world changing is very much out of the Buckminster Fuller playbook. It is something that you hear again and again in head or South by Southwest sort of context. And it is somewhat disingenuous in most cases, especially where you're talking about a mega company like Google claiming that they are looking out for all of us. But at the same time, as a motivation, it is something that I think would have been quite foreign before Fuller came along. He crystallized it. And now it has become something that at least we have in mind as an ideal, as something to strive for. We did a whole show about the so-called tiny house movement. I mean, what could be more fuller? Uh, I mean, not not all of them are geodesic domes or things like that, but that notion of a house that can be plopped down anywhere uh, is so fuller. Um, we also want to talk to uh, Kurt Prisbilla. He's the inventor of uh, Tetratops, a writer and educator whose work is inspired by Buckminster Fuller. Tetratops, we should say, are tops that w- work on multiple axi- axes and uh, have spherical components. So, um, Kurt Prisbilla, how, first of all, um, how did Duck, how did Buckminster Fuller get to you? How did he uh, reach your brain from wherever he is right now? Well, uh, we had a geodesic dome in the backyard that I would beg my father to set up every spring when the snow melted, but uh, I really didn't get into his ideas until much later when I was in my 20s and someone gave me a book and I was fascinated by his life and works. I was particularly uh, inspired by the idea that we're trained to think in squares flat planes and cubes, but they aren't structurally stable, and it's not what nature is using to build. Actually, nature uses spheres 
on an atomic level and really didn't run into that in my formal education and uh, I was inspired by the book to actually start building models and when I put some acrylic spheres together I discovered that they spin real well yeah and this Jonathan this is um, I don't know if we talked enough about it or if we had time to talk enough about it but you know I mean Fuller tends to remind us of all the revolutionary thinkers all the people who are kind of challenging orthodoxies there's a little bit of Noam Chomsky in him too and just even in the way that he just objects he objects to all the things that Kurtz just talking about he even objects in some of his speeches to the terms up and down uh, up pointing towards the sky down pointing towards the earth he says that's not the way it is at all why do people keep saying that so there's a way in which he's just pushing us even at the level of verbiage about how we're going to talk about life yeah, but the, the thing that really inspired me was that he was he he showed um, actually if you built a cube it doesn't stand up on its own you and and when I built one and discovered that it was very profound for me and his whole push for using of triangles actually that's where structural stability comes from is something that when you discover it through doing and and he would argue that experience is the only teacher. Um, it's something that you realize we're just being trained to think in these X, Y, Z coordinate systems, but that's not how nature is actually doing things. And, and Kurt, one thing we know now, too, kind of almost post-Buckminster Fuller, uh, we know through Buckyballs, uh, named after him, is we may be living even more in uh, Buckminster Fuller's universe than, than he knew or than we knew. There are ways in which these uh, carbon molecules, which exist um, not only on Earth but, else, but in space and, and seem to play some incredibly important role in that I don't understand, so I'm going to not summarize right now— um, seem to resemble his understanding of reality more than any kind of Euclidean understanding of reality. Yeah, well, and it goes back to how on an atomic level nature is using spheres to build. And I think Bucky would have, would have argued that it's the same reality, it's just that we're not taught much about it. And he was arguing that using spheres we can understand nature's coordinate system. And uh, on an atomic level how spheres relate to each other to build different structures. And Buckminster Fullerene was named after him. It's carbon-60. It's a, a third allotrope of carbon. You've got diamond, graphite, and now fullerenes, which is a whole class. Nanotubes, the whole nanotech revolution was basically started in 85 with the discovery of what is technically termed Buckminster Fullerene, named after him. So uh, I want to go back to Jonathan Keats here for a second. Um, Jonathan, uh, you've been on our show so many times to talk about so many different things, usually in, uh, in the world of art and philosophy and, and conceptual uh, art. Um, how How is Buckminster Fuller going to express himself through you? Are we going to see uh, Jonathan Keats projects now that, that channel some of these Fuller ideas in some way? I think that Fuller has really inspired me for a very long time in terms of my work and has pushed me harder and farther as far as that work is concerned. Over in your part of the country, for instance, I recently built a camera with a thousand-year-long exposure. I built this at the Mead Art Museum at Amherst College in Western Massachusetts. And the camera is a pinhole camera that takes one very, very long exposure very slowly, looking out on the on the mountains and in the process of doing so is 
taking in the world as it changes, the, as as we change that, change the world through our actions, and our ability to simply recognize our having this system in place and being watched by it has the potential to create a reflexive or a reflective means by which we can think about what we're doing now in terms of its impact on the far future. And I think that that sort of thinking is not entirely what Fuller was up to, but at the same time, that level of ambition, that completely insane attempt to do something that maybe is not going to work out in the end is something that I get from him and that has been pushing me to really think more about how to make these monumental objects and gestures in the world today. Um, we're going to have to wrap up this show here. I think I want to thank uh, Kurt Brisbilla for joining us, too, and, and Bonnie DeVarco, especially uh, Jonathan Keats. I would also recommend reading uh, Jonathan's interview in Wired at Wired.com. Uh, I love the thing at the end about because so much of Fuller's idea is kind of the design and, and concept, concept Trump thing uh, and what thing is made out of. There's a great uh, scenario at the end uh, about 3D printers and about a house where maybe you'd you know, take your dishes and put them back through the 3D printer and make bedclothes and just constantly be sort of changing all the little things in your house because really it's the design. It's the idea. that, And that does very much seem to be the universe that we're living in right now or the world that we need to live in right now. Uh, Jonathan Keats, uh, thanks for being with us today. And uh, special thanks to Josh Nalea for working this whole show out. It's been fascinating stuff. We will be back tomorrow with a nose with Luis Figueroa, Carolyn Payne, and James Hanley. One of the things we're going to be talking about, I know it's a subject of great urgency, to you, Buckminster Fuller would be worried about it if you were alive today. Why is Ben Affleck so sad? Why, why is he so sad? Oh, Buckminster Fuller.